0: I'm really excited about my guest today. Judy Wu Dominic describes herself as a truth teller. And if you've read any of her articles or written works, I think you'll agree. One of her aims is to help Christians engage more effectively across racial, ethnic, cultural, religious, socioeconomic, and political divides. Now, as an ethnic minority herself living in predominantly white spaces, Judy has experienced racism in her own life. Her desire is for the Christian church to find kingdom, love, and unity, but I would add that we can't do that while we ignore the huge elephant in the room, the racial violence and other injustices that many people of color routinely experience, even right here in the land of the free. And so Judy talks about some of these issues, and I like the way that she does it. And by the way, you can read her articles on her blog, lifereconsidered.com and christianitytoday.com. So we'll jump into the conversation where I asked Judy about a life-changing realization in her life several years ago. So let's talk about your story and about how your worldview shifted about a decade ago, I think it was, and how you learned to love your frenemies as you described them. Um, I I read a piece Mm -hmm. where you wrote um, about a Thanksgiving uh, day experience you had with your family. And it was kind of this, this, um, this dawning of a realization that you had your worldview had shifted a little bit or a lot, maybe tell us about that and, and what that experience, uh, taught you and, and, and since then.
1: Yeah. So, um, I have to think back, it was actually, I, I started having this shift starting in about 2012, or 2011, it it just kind of progressed. And it was, um, you know, trying to unpack my own ethnic identity in the midst of, you know, things that were going on around me. I think that starting in my, oh gosh, late 30s, early 40s, I started having some experiences in uh, white evangelical spaces that, I think I was in a white evangelical space for so long without really feeling that there were any issues because I was so committed to assimilating. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a result of some experiences I had had in middle school with, you know, uh, classmates making fun of my mom's accent or um, hearing my, my other Asian friends called, you know, racial, racial slurs and, and, and just being really aware, self conscious, and ashamed of the skin I was in.
0: And just to interject, and, your mm-hmm. ethnicity is uh, Taiwanese. I am
1: ta- correct. Taiwanese okay. American. My parents immigrated from Taiwan in uh, my dad in nineteen sixty nine, my mom in nineteen seventy one, and I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Okay. So I was raised by um, immigrants who. Really, they came over in their late 20s, so they were like fully formed adults with, you know, all of the cultural values that came with them. Mm-hmm. And so I was raised in this environment at home one way and then trying to navigate a very different culture outside of the home. And So I became bicultural or, um, you know, I really relate a lot to the term third sort of culture kid mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I could kind of go back and forth, but uh, I have... Portions of each culture that are deeply embedded in my psyche. Mm. And so, but I think these early experiences of racism, uh, really, the way I responded was to dislike myself and my parents' culture. And part of the reason is because my parents experienced a lot of wartime trauma when they were growing up um it wasn't it was like the end of world war II, and there were us air raids over taiwan that destroyed like my mom's entire city and uh-huh. she almost died in one of the us air raids and like when uh, an american bomb was dropped on her grandfather's house wow so they survived that and then a few years later um, there was you know after the regime change from japan to the chinese nationalist party there was a lot of corruption, a lot of civil unrest that culminated in what is known as the 228 incident or a white terror when the Chinese military massacred tens of thousands of Taiwanese people. Mm. And it was a, a period of like extreme political repression and a lot of people were imprisoned if they weren't killed And and this is the environment that they grew up in. So they experienced a lot of political trauma, but they never talked about it. So I never learned about it. And I was growing up here in the United States. I just thought they were difficult people um, and that home life was just kind of chaotic. So therefore, Taiwanese people must be just not great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, this is as a child trying to experience mm-hmm. this. And then going to school and then seeing other people seeming to be very well adjusted and confident in their own skin. I'm like, well, if I could just be like them, everything would be great. Mm-hmm. Right, you know? So you had all these different experiences uh, forming identity in ways that I, I had no vocabulary for, no framework. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to, I'm just a kid, you know. So fast forward many decades later, um, well, maybe not too many decades, but I ended up, becoming a christian in college and i chose to go to a white predominantly white presbyterian church and so i was very much uh, a part of the presbyterian tradition during my most formative years as a christian Mm -hmm. and i had really thought about politics a lot but when i look back there was a lot of republicanism and you know conservative politics that kind of intersected in the space sometimes it was even preached from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember the pastor being very uh, pro-war when we went to war in Iraq and um, Saddam Hussein was deposed, Mm -hmm. you know, and how how it was presented as, this is the instrument of God, you know, to bring about justice in that country. And I just thought, oh, okay. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't really think about it critically at all. Mm -hmm. I do remember a friend of mine, saying that that was completely unacceptable but we never really got into a conversation but she was like the only one everybody was like yeah you Mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. and in the same space there were other things that I absorbed attitudes they weren't necessarily explicitly talked about um, as a thing they just kind of came up you know uh, derogatory ways of talking about say Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson or um, you know uh, the the ways that they would say oh, they're race baiters and they're divisive. And I didn't know what they were talking about, but I picked up all of the, all the same attitudes just mm-hmm. kind of took them for granted. The, Cause it, it's in the same space. I'm also studying Romans, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being formed by Bible study. And so all these things are in the same matrix, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I listen to talk radio and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Sean oh, yeah. Hannity. I mean, I listen, I, I watched Fox News and it sure. was like normal. And so I was formed by those things just as I was formed by the non-political Bible studies. But, you know, it was the same sort of it was an odd mix, you know, and I think about it. Um, and when I met my husband, um, we were very much in agreement in a lot of things politically and um and we got married in two thousand six. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved to Atlanta and we were trying to find a new church, um, for some reason as a complete outsider coming in instead of being like a college student growing up within a church and then staying there for fourteen years, suddenly I was like an adult, I was a mother, I was trying to make new friends from scratch. And I found that process just excruciatingly difficult. Mm. Uh, I felt very invisible in these spaces where I would like join the play group. I would be invited to like participate, show up, and um, I would be trying to get acquainted with people asking them questions. uh, How long have you lived here? Where are you from? Oh, your husband's in seminary. And, And nobody would ask me any questions. Um, and they would keep talking to each other but nobody would pull me into the conversation so it was you know things like that you just feel like am I in middle school again Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and um, after several more obvious uh, ways of being excluded or shut down or nudged aside I just I had just had it you know and I said to my husband that I wanted to try a multi-ethnic church because I'd never experienced anything like that and he said, okay, you know, well, let's try it. And so we did, and we found a multi-ethnic church. And um, because it was Atlanta, it was kind of reflective of, of the demographics of Atlanta. So it was probably half white, half black, and a handful of other, right? right. Asian, Latino, Indian, East, Inge- East Indian. And um, and it was uh, it was such a, an incredible time of— Self discovery (laughs) and getting acquainted with my own anti black prejudice, Mm -hmm. and you know having never really had to to look at that for what it was. Right. But when you're in community with people, and things start to defy your assumptions about them, you really start to realize, wow, I really thought these things, and that was really inaccurate. And there's also such a diversity of experiences and a diversity of personalities and convictions, just like in any community. And so um, the Lord really used that time to break these things down for me and also help me deal with the internalized racism that I had been living with for a long time where, you know, I just thought, you know, white people know best, white people um, are best. And I mean, I really Mm -hmm. just kind of subconsciously had integrated that into my mm. my thinking you know belief system and so i shifted to the opposite side where i just became very angry that i had been this way for mm. so long and i felt fooled mm-hmm. and um i became very almost militant in the way that i was pursuing racial justice and that was a very difficult time for you know in our marriage because my husband's like okay, I get that this was upsetting, but now like it's constant. Like, (laughs) you know, I was reading things and I was like starting these conversations that were all very intense and Mm -hmm. uncomfortable over, you know, dinner. And (laughs) 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 I didn't, uh, I I mean, because it's just so, uh, it's an intense internal experience. And it's like when that happens to you, it just bubbles over Mm. and splashes on the people around you. For, for better or for worse. And and my mother-in-law and my husband and I, you know, we all used to be on the same page. And so suddenly I'm on a different page and then he and her are still on the same page. And so now I'm feeling like, y'all are like a team. You know, he's like, we're not a team. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's like, no, we're not purposefully teaming up here. You know, <clears throat> I'm like, I understand this, but it feels like that. Right. And I also was moderating, um, a, a Facebook group, um, Be the Bridge, which was focused on racial justice and uh, truth telling and racial reconciliation, and I would have to read through the things that people were submitting to post. And so, you know, I was like seeing everything, mm-hmm. and that didn't help because I was like, oh, that makes me angry, and that makes me angry. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is so infuriating, and and so I, I recognized at some point that I really needed to. If I wanted to stay married <laughs> mm-hmm. and have, you know, uh, and co parent with my husband effectively, and um, uh, I needed to focus not on like activism outside of the home, but really figure out what does racial reconciliation look like on a microcosm, like in our own home.
0: So, and, and that's what I want to ask you is how did you work mm-hmm. through those feelings of? Of anger i mean and you know just like hey i've been deceived all these years or you know whatever Mm -hmm. i bought into this
2: yeah Um, how
0: to do that and then at the same time you know still not throw that all away because obviously Mm we you know there it needs to be talked about sometimes right right
1: that's right um i think that once i stopped the constant flow of things that were provoking my spirit, I Mm -hmm. had much more bandwidth to really be present in my relationships at home. Okay. And, you know, you have to think about these things, too, in the context of your entire life and relationship together. So my husband and I had been through a lot of life together. Uh, My mom became critically ill in 2014, and he was like a rock for me through that whole experience and very sacrificial and giving and loving. And, and, you know, you don't just based on some differences that you have politically, just pretend like none of the other things matter.
2: Sure.
1: And so you have to figure out, okay. And and he was very open to, to like reading different things and learning himself and trying to see other points of view. So I was very grateful for that. And he said, I just need you to realize that, you know, I see a lot of these things i think you're probably right but i'm probably not going to get to the same place as you do and certainly not as quickly mm-hmm. and i just you know can you just be patient and gracious and i'm like yes i think that's very fair you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so <clears throat> i think that when you're online talking to strangers and you everything feels abstract you can talk about white fragility white privilege you can talk about all those things and use these terms but when you're like really wrestling in a relationship with somebody you're like okay what if those terms go away as you really just start to talk about like what's happening here Mm -hmm. in this dynamic between us you know and you as a white male me as an asian female and having them through my experiences and you yours like how do we still come together and, and try to understand each other. And that requires sacrifice on both our parts, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And my mother-in-law, to her credit, too, she was also open to reading different things. And uh, she had come to certain realizations, and she would say, you know, this really hit me, and you're right, I, you know, I, I never thought that I grew up in a racist society. I never thought about it that way, but it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I see it now. Um, and she grew up in Jim Carcelle.
2: Oh, wow.
1: You know, and in North Carolina. um, But she said, I never witnessed racism and I never, you know, any of that. And so to me, there was really not a big deal. We heard about Martin Luther King Jr., but it was more just stuff that was happening elsewhere. And um, I was busy raising kids, and our biggest concern was Vietnam. That was more all consuming than the civil rights movement. And she said, but she actually regretted all these years later, looking back, you know, we went to the ML the King Center in Atlanta on MLK Day a few years ago. And she was like, I just really regret missing all of that history.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear from her because it gave me some insight into, you know, some of the reactions that people have now of like, whether it's Black Lives Matter or you know, the ongoing struggle for racial equality, the addressing the wealth gap, the ongoing school segregation and all that. And they're like, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> it's like, it was like, neither did they. And you think right. that you would have when you lived, if you had lived in those times, but this is, this is what we're saying.
0: You know, and this makes me think of something you've written, um, along these, well, you're related to racism and let me just read it. It says, you said racism skeptics are quick, to dismiss or explain away testimonies about the racialized experiences of non-dominant groups, but they're often mm-hmm. misled by their personal tendency to base their skepticism on their own life context instead of those of others. And right. is that what's going on here to some extent you think, I mean, are we just so, um, self-absorbed and inward focused as individuals and in as, as, little people groups, you know, within society that we, you know, we just generally don't, you know, understand what other people are going through in these other context Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i think so and i think that i had written a piece about it was a reflection on that day um, to the king center with my mother-in-law and i i often think about segregation hurting the black community and that's very obvious right Mm -hmm. but you think about it also hurt the white community because it allowed them to be so separated from these realities that they're truly just disconnected from some extremely like terrible things that are happening and it allows them to remain unaware and to be complicit without even knowing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. no one wants to think that they're being unjust, especially passively. Sure. But, but segregation accomplishes that for you because it's geographic, it's structural. And, and like my mother-in-law who grew up in the Jim Crow South, you know, we we've grown up as like, I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, I grew up, you know, looking at the photos of like, you know, Whites only, you know, all those signs from, you know, the 1950s that have been removed. And you just think it was so obvious. It was like racism in your face. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But her comment to me, my mother-in-law, was I never I never really witnessed racism. Mm-hmm. And, and so to her, it's like it didn't exist. <laughs> you yeah, know. right. Uh, but it did exist. And that's what allowed her to live in a society, when in in which she didn't have to witness what was being done to other people.
0: And it's interesting because you've also written about how our churches, not just you know society at large, but our churches, Christian, you know, supposedly Bible following churches, are are segregated in a way, right? Um, right. You've talked about how most churchgoers in America attend homogenous churches that function more like affinity groups as an earthly reflection of what the new heaven and new earth filled with people of all tongues, tribes and nations will look like. And so is that, um, you know, do you think again, going back to this question of why is it that, um, we can grow up in a society where there's racism going on around us, or at least other people are are feeling like they're experiencing that, but we don't see that. Some of us don't see that. Mm -hmm. Um, how, you know, is that happening in our churches too, do you think? Because we're, we're kind of like sticking with people that look like us, think like us, talk like mm-hmm.
1: us. Yeah, I think that um, because we're so segregated geographically, um, we're segregated you know, socially and politically. Mm-hmm. So the things that affect entire groups of people of God um, are not even being felt or witnessed by this entire demographic Mm. that are faithful believers. They go to church every Sunday and they worship and they're, they're trying to, you know, be just and merciful in the ways that they know how, Um, you know, I, I, I listened to an entire sermon series on injustice fatigue and there was no mention throughout this entire series of injustice about police brutality or uh, immigrant detention, ch- child separation, like family separation. There was like no mention of any of those things. And mm-hmm. yet I'm connected to communities where these are overwhelming daily realities. Mm-hmm. And so I sat in the, the pew and listened week after week, and I was like, man, this is just depressing. Mm-hmm. Because the examples that were cited for injustice fatigue were like, this world is a really hard place. Sometimes your neighbors do the wrong things to you, or you get— robbed or you don't get the promotion you want or um people get sick and they don't want to die but they do and and there's no mention of these other social realities you know unjust policies that are oppressing um, very vulnerable people or um you know the economics that continue to to widen the wealth gap the disappearance of affordable housing that's causing homelessness to spike, you know, in cities or gentrification. That's like pushing people out of the communities they have lived in for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, and I don't know, it's really amazing to me, but I was in that world before where that was not on my mind either. So, you know, I don't have stones to throw because I remember what it was like.
0: Sure. So how do we, how do we get past this? You know, because you've also written that even in, in in churches that are um, ethnically mixed, Mm -hmm. you know, that we can still have this superficial uh, community as you describe it, um, Mm -hmm. where we're nice on the outside, but yet we really don't go deep. Um, and, And, you know, so these things are bubbling under the surface for a lot of people sitting in a congregation, let's say where, you know, there's a sermon series being preached like you just described, but they're thinking, this doesn't apply to me, you know, I, or I, I've got other issues that I'm worried about, but they're not talking about those. How do we, you know, I mean, you, you talk about how your, your experience earlier was that, you know, you were just talking about this stuff all the time. You were pretty riled up. And, um, mm-hmm. even though that caused, it sounds like a lot of tension, um, is, is that what the church needs? Kind of like the prophetic voice of someone coming in and, and stirring us up a little bit. Um, you know, where's that balance? How does this happen?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's like not one answer, right? Mm-hmm. I think you mm-hmm. need agitators. I think you need people who are working subversively um, through simply their presence in some of these spaces okay. and also like some direct action. I think you need a lot of different things because each of those – approaches reaches different pools of people.
0: Okay. And some can be turned off by the agitator, perhaps not, and they won't listen anymore. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. And, and through just kind of organic relationships and forming, I I try to take a long view on things. Um, And I think as a writer, I've really wrestled with how best to use the gifts that God has given me um, to advance his kingdom in these areas that I really feel strongly about. And I I don't consider myself necessarily an activist um, in the political sense, but I think that I am a truth teller and I, you know, wherever I go, one of the, one of the hardest things for me is that I do have discernment gifts. And so in every space that I'm in, I'm always seeing like what's missing, what's wrong, what needs to happen the mm-hmm. systemic things, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I have to really all always be in prayer about being judgmental because that's really my bent. Uh, if I'm not submitted to the Holy spirit, mm-hmm. I would just like be on a war path all the time, you know, which is exhausting. <laughs> but, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think there's, there's also in an American culture, this tendency for people with writing or communication gifts to be elevated and promoted. And then suddenly you're in this like Christian conference industrial circuit um, or complex, Mm -hmm. or uh, there's this whole economy, social economy of like influencer culture, promoting self-promotion, mutual promotion. And you get really caught up in that. And then you, you end up pursuing that instead of really focusing on what, God is telling you to do. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who's doing that is guilty of that, right? I'm just saying that it's a temptation. It's a worldly temptation because of, you know, whatever these these tools are good, mm-hmm. but they're also, um, I don't know, doorways to, you know, other temptations that aren't necessarily going like, to help you grow in your faith mm-hmm. or be more faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal conviction for me is not to pursue influence, platform, those ty- those ty- those types of things, mm-hmm. but to cultivate faithfulness wherever God has placed me physically. Mm, I like that, and um, to really like go deep where I where that is, and then my writing flows out of that, and. If that writing is read and it's, it's worth sharing, I think people will share it and I'll leave it up to the Lord to determine kind of, you know, where it, where it lands, you know, mm-hmm. because I, I think that if I spend too much energy trying to pursue that, you know, my voice, getting my voice out there or whatever, then, um, I'm going to miss the, the component of just really being faithful and present.
0: Yeah. No, and that's that's a huge point because I think sometimes we can be so focused on you know, what's this big thing I can do for God that mm-hmm. God's like, hey, I've got some stuff right in front of you that I want you to be faithful in, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and and those things. I'm
0: oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead.
1: Well, I was thinking about you know some of the most influential writers and in that you know for me and people that have. Um, I think of Eugene Peterson. He's one of my favorite writers, Mm -hmm. and he really—I think he really was a prophet. Just the ways that he said things and thought about things. Mm -hmm. It—it wasn't any particular issue too. It was much more global to me. Mm -hmm. And—and yet, he never pursued these platforms. You know, Um, I think just a really humble humble guy. Yes, he mm-hmm. he was, and he focused on taking care of his congregation.
2: Mm.
1: You know, now there are some differences. You know, he's a white male I'm an Asian female, and so you know, um, he had certain advantages that I did not. Sure. As Wendell Berry, you know, who's like like a Luddite, you know. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, his his writing is just widely read and very influential and effective. Um, but he 's right. on social media i don 't think he even has a phone in this wow his house. he he might i but he doesn't have a computer okay i don 't think uh, with internet connection. he might have a computer for like word processing and typing, yeah, but not, not he doesn't get on the internet
0: he's not on Twitter or facebook he's or definitely media. not on
1: yeah. he's definitely not on social media huh. you know, but he still gets interviews and you know I mean and he talked about that too. he was in New York City because that 's where like all the You know, up-and-coming writers were, and that's where he was going to get exposure. And he was like, "No, I really feel called to go back to Kentucky, the small town, and and go back and live this life." When people call him crazy, and Mm -hmm. and it's after that that he did his best work. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm very much um, a believer that the simple, hidden things um, are are. Essential in, in spiritual formation mm-hmm. and that if you don't pay attention to those things, you're gonna have a hard time producing things that have lasting value. But if you are willing to go into those spaces of obscurity and and tend your tend to your garden, mm-hmm. then you know, it will produce fruit. And again, that's something that I think there's something mystical about you know the way that God does that, and He He has the ability to give you the message and disseminate the message. You
0: know? Yeah, and and this goes back to the whole question of how do we affect change when it comes to um, this issue of you know just like racism or whatever you you want to call it in the American Christian Church, right? I mean, it's like you you look at Jesus and how he did his ministry. You know, he comes down for you know, his, his life of 33, you know, approximately years or whatever in a, a ministry of maybe three and a half years. And y- you would think that, uh, God could have come up with a little bit better plan maybe to reach the world. Right. But he spends his mm-hmm. life within, you know, a circle of about a hundred and 150 miles, right. Radius and, mm-hmm. and, and hangs out with 12 guys and dies, resurrects, goes to heaven. And yet, you know, look at what, has happened as a result Mm -hmm. of, of that. And so kind of the small things is what you're saying, right? The, you know, just, just being faithful where God has called you. And and is that really what it takes? I mean, when I think about, um, you know, the fact that most of us, yeah, again, we're in these groups of people that, you know, oftentimes look like us, um, maybe think like us, um, you know, how does the church ever come to, I, I think you've you've written about kingdom love and unity in this area. How, how do we ever get there? And I mean, what you're saying is just basically it's, it's kind of just being faithful where God has put us right. And, and loving mm-hmm. people and having those conversations when, when the opportunity arises.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm pretty intentional about trying to pursue opportunities. Okay. Um, you know, I, I don't think I wouldn't necessarily call an agenda, but I, for me, the way that I've been framing it lately is like I want to be faithfully like and true, like truly who I am in the space that I find myself in. Mm, okay. And that person, who I am, um, I'm going to look for opportunities to speak truth if I feel like there's something awry. Sure. You know, but then that's where I really seek God's help and being wise about like how to do it when to do it because I feel like timing is extremely important as well and there have been times where I'm like I'm ready to say something and I sense that he's like wait mm-hmm. you know? right There's and then like a, a couple of other things happen that I didn't predict was were gonna happen that like suddenly then it becomes obvious okay now's the time you know and yeah. I think I've I've had to learn that um, because I think I would just speak all the time and
0: you know, sometimes people aren't may, ready to hear I, it.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I may speak sometimes when people aren't ready to hear it, and that's when I that's still when I need to speak. And sure, so I'm not sure. saying that it's because you know every time I speak, it's because God has paved the way and now is effective. No, cause sometimes He just wants me to be courageous mm, um, mm-hmm. in in the face of resistance, right? Which is why I don't have too many prescriptives, except <laughs> right. just be discerning. Uh-huh. and when god says go you go and when he says wait you wait right sometimes it's i'm going to speak and i'm going to say something in this moment in a public way other times i'm going to take somebody aside and i'm going to talk to them that way i just never know it really varies
0: i want to pick your brain for a minute on 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 something i want to hear your your uh your wisdom on this because um i, I recently watched um, a movie called dude um sorry just mercy and it's yeah, about great. attorney brian stevenson you may have seen it mm-hmm, um I did. you know powerful movie powerful story if you've read his book um mm-hmm. a couple years ago i got to hear him speak in person here in sacramento near where i live and oh, that was good. just yeah. super powerful event and and he says that You know, one of the things I remember him saying, and I think he says this in his TED talk as well, he says, um, you know, we don't like to talk about our history here in America when it comes to racism. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you go to countries like South Africa, for example, where they've kind of worked through some of this, at least to an extent, they had their truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Um, Brian Stevenson says, "Listen, you can't have reconciliation unless you first had the truth and here in america we're not really willing to talk about the truth the fact that we have had lynchings up until mm-hmm. just recently i mean it's it's been within the lifetime of um, many people alive today that remember that i mean segregation is yeah. still a reality right. and it was you know jim crow and all this was was happening here in the lifetime of of a lot of people that are still living today and and we're, we're just a couple generations removed from slavery. I mean, it, it's it's these things are recent and they're open, they're festering, and we don't want to talk about it. So, so my question to you is, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, dude, it doesn't exist. Racism is, you know, it's just a, a fantasy in people's minds, and and they're just, you know, whiners, complainers, whatever. What do you say to a racism skeptic? Because you you mentioned, you know, we talked about how you've you've talked about, hey, you know, we we just believe our own experience, but how do you, what do you say to someone who's like, I don't think it exists. Um, I mean, how do you, what do you say to them? How, how can someone in that situation learn to realize that it does exist? I mean, what, what would you tell somebody who's a racism skeptic? skeptic?
1: Oh goodness. You know, <laughs> it, it kind of depends. Um, I was I was having a, a conversation on Twitter with um, a gentleman that you know I didn't know, but he was very insistent on. Uh, well, the context is that I was talking about um, white Christians from affluent churches in my city mm-hmm. uh, volunteering in poor black neighborhoods in the south side of the city, and you know a friend of mine who uh, works in the South side of the city, uh, often receives these volunteers and, you know, they show up and she's like, it's always like some person who, when we're all praying together says, Oh Lord, thank you that you have given us the privilege of ministering to the least of these. Mm-hmm. And it'll be like in the presence of the people that they're trying to work with, you know, uh, which yeah. is very, very condescending. Right. Right. Uh very sincere, but it's very syrupy and, um, just demeaning,
2: right.
1: But they're using this biblical language. So it's supposed to be okay. And I was commenting on how we could we could address a lot of that if we were willing to do an orientation for anyone wanting to do this kind of ministry that forced them to look at the history of the city of Dallas, for example, and, and, And said, why does it look so segregated the way it does by race, by class, you know, socioeconomics? Mm -hmm. There's a story behind that. And there's all this data that historians have gathered and it's all on record. It's in books, it's in essays, it's in newspaper articles, if they want to learn about it. Um, You know, there are organizations doing all kinds of work, trying to teach people, trying to change the narrative. um, That's like very superficial. And and so a gentleman commented, I don't think that you can undo any of these things. I think we just need to address the present. And it was a really unusual way for me. It's a very unusual way to think about it. It's so um, like it's as if you took the you know, left brain and right brain. And, and you did, like, that epileptic procedure where you just, like, cut the brain in half mm-hmm. so it no longer communicates with itself and it can't have seizures. I feel like that's what people do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's, it's so unpleasant. Let's just move on and deal with the present. But I often use this analogy. When I'm sitting in my counselor's office trying to figure out why do I keep repeating certain patterns or why is this, whenever this happens, so exquisitely painful to me? We can't answer any of those questions unless we go back and talk about my history, my childhood, my adolescence, these formative events. And then once I can understand what happened, then I have the ability to make different choices in the present because I'm like, okay, this represents that. Now that I understand mm-hmm. that, I can rationally choose to respond this way, you know. Right. And so you know, if you have all this history that has happened that has created uh, segregation, geography, wealth gaps by race and, and all that, and you you choose not to reckon with that, then you're just going to think, oh, I'm going to go help these poor people who just didn't know better and they ended up poor and, you know, at risk. Right. And it's like, well, I think actually you need to have a justice mindset toward that and a reparation Well, people like go, you know, want to like break out in hives when you say that word, but it just means repair. Mm -hmm. You repair the damage that was done. Now, you can't undo it, but you can say, what is the best way to approach this? How do we empower people who have been stripped of power generations ago, you know, in a way that still recognizes their inherent dignity because they're made in the image of God?
0: So in a way, I hear you saying that education— Knowledge is, is a big key in this, right?
1: I think it's a big key. I don't think it's the only key because mm-hmm. some people, you give them knowledge and it makes them worse. And I don't know why. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, or they are unwilling to engage with it. And, and so then you're like, well, I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah. And they, they want to just throw that away and do other things with it.
0: Yeah. I, I just think as a parent, you know, if if I went by that you know, mantra, well, let's just live in the present. Let's live in the future. You know, whenever, every time my kid came to me with a problem or if they're crying mm-hmm. cause they hurt themselves, you know, how, how does that work? It doesn't really work that well, right? You have to address right. the, the past, what's happened. Why did this happen? Why are you upset? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we like to sweep it under the rug. And so I think unfortunately this has happened in, in, you know, in the church again. and And so here we are, but I appreciate your perspective and uh, just the nuance, you know, with which you're addressing this. I want to just finish up with, with one more um, kind of a question for you. You, you had written about um, great article about, you know, fake news where people um, choose their political side and they kind of hunker down in their silos. I don't know if you said that, but that's what I'm saying. And um, <laughs> you know, you said we can only do better if we become aware of what we're actually doing. And that requires slowing down, being silent or at least slow to speak on our media platforms. And, and I can identify Mm -hmm. with that because there've been times where I'm just like, Oh man, I am so frustrated right now with Mm -hmm. everything that's going on. And so you tweet this or you, you know, post whatever on social media and, um, And then I'll go back sometimes in a more sane moment and delete stuff or unlike things. I'm like, I shouldn't probably be liking that, (laughs) you know, even though that's where I was at emotionally, you know, um, how, how do you, uh, navigate, you know, like social media, I'm going to kind of just hear from you on that. Like, you know, are you, how should Christians, you know, whether someone's a, you know, Fox news devotee or they're into Rachel Maddow on the left or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, what are some things for all of us that we can do to say, you know what, let's take a step back. And, um, you know, I I just appreciate your perspective on that. Maybe you can kind of elaborate a little bit on, you know, taking a step back from all the noise in this, in this environment that we live in right now.
1: Mm. Trying to get a feel for, um, how much social media, it's like sort of like social media space versus, and I read somebody use this term meat space, (laughs) Okay. It's kind of gross, gross but mm-hmm. they're talking about you know like embodied space. Sure. Um, and um, I do think that we're being shaped by the way that we're interacting with interacting with people on social media. It's it's so easy to just become a very reactive communicator, and and then that forms a habit of mind. And posture, and then you carry that into your physical spaces when you interact with people face to face as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have friends who are not on social media. Quite a few friends, you know, that I have met here in Dallas who are not on social media, and they talk about these things kind of differently. You know, I'm not saying they're less opinionated, but there's a more um, there's more willingness to engage in good faith versus being cynical right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a difference because it's a difference between having a dialogue or having a reactive exchange of phrases and sentences. Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I just think and even me, like. There, there are times when I'm like, I'm, I'm getting off of this thing for like. Yeah. Forever, right. <laughs> and and yeah, I did delete. I did delete Facebook finally because I was just like, "This mm. is just no good. This is no good." <laughs> you know.
0: Oh, I know. It's a cesspool. Yeah, I,
1: yeah. Yeah. And but but Twitter is also. You know, I'm like, I don't know how people think Facebook is so much worse than Twitter. I'm like, have mm-hmm. you been on Twitter? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and you know, I'm always surprised. at like somebody, I'll tweet something. Let's just say, like jello is bad you know <laughs> and so i'd be like oh okay so you're a, uh, you know whatever mm-hmm. like watch the carnage you know yeah and it's it's like why did you take that so personally that you had to just come at me with nothing but sarcasm and we've never met and we probably never will like what is the point like what are you trying to accomplish does it just make you are you just venting because something just really like I don't know. I'm trying to understand the psychology, but I think it's this, uh, I'm frustrated with my life over here. And so I'm going to take it out on this random stranger online, you know, and then there's all this, then, then there's the pylon If it happens to be a hot button topic, you know, get everybody firing their shots back and forth or amplifying. I'm going to like that, you know, which just feels like a passive aggressive dig against a person that that comments against, you know, Who's going to get that notification? I mean, it's a huge mess. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I could totally if they did away with the rating system, like the liking and all that. I think even that would be an improvement.
0: Interesting. Hey, thanks so much uh, for for being a guest here on on Do Justice, and thanks for the work that you're doing. Thanks for your um, your writing ministry as well.
1: Oh, absolutely, and thank you so much for being a reader. I really appreciate that. Just as a writer.
0: Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now.